with you this morning, and there was a not tall person at that thing. So, hey, this morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, so if you have a Bible and you would like to go ahead and open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, my name is Jack, I'm one of the elders here. And uh, it's a joy to be with you sharing this morning. Uh, one of the qualifications of an elder is you have to be able to teach. And so we try to make sure as elders we're taking turns teaching a little bit from time to time. So this morning I'll be with you. We're going through the book of First Corinthians. If you haven't been with us, um, we are taking basically a chapter a week. And this week we are in chapter 10. Uh, I want to start out this morning uh, by referencing another passage from the book of 1 Corinthians, which I think um, may be one of the most beneficial and important passages for us as we consider the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, when Flood was preaching the second sermon, there was a passage that stood out to me, and I keep going back to it. And it's 1 Corinthians 2. You don't have to turn there, but I just want to read it out. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8. Paul writes this, he says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And the reason why I think that's so important, especially as we start walking through this passage today, is that the book of 1 Corinthians is really addressing multiple issues that are going on within a church, this messy church. And the thing is, God's wisdom is not always our wisdom. It's not the wisdom of the world. It's not the way that people around us would respond to situations. Sometimes there's things that are good, and sometimes there are things that people will do. But a lot of times when we read in God's Word, God's wisdom, it pushes back against the cultural tides that are around us. But if we want to take it one step further, it doesn't just push back against the cultural tides. If we're going to be real candid, it pushes back against even our own desires from time to time, our own thoughts about ways things should be done, about the way that we should live, about how we should pursue happiness, how we should pursue our good. And so what we find is that God's wisdom is at odds with our wisdom, and we're left with a choice. What do we do? And what we want to do is we want to remember that God's ways, even if they push against what we think and what we believe and where we would want to go, we remember the goodness of God and His infinite wisdom and His holiness and His love and His concern for us. So this week we are in chapter 10. Now, this transitions right out of chapter 9. So last week, Fudd in chapter 9 helped us to see that Paul wants us to have a mindset of wanting to make an impact for the gospel on those who don't know Christ. So we will relinquish our rights and retool our lives. I think were the, the, the R's that he used. I may be quoting that wrong. But the idea there is that what we will do is we will set aside our own personal preferences. We will work on our schedule. We'll do everything we can so that we can in some way hope to reach those who don't know Christ so they too might experience the love, the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness, the satisfaction that Jesus can offer. And chapter 9 ends with a verse where Paul says he beats his body and puts it into submission and puts it under his control. He does this. It's a discipline issue. Well, in that, there's a transition in chapter 10 where Paul now, I believe, goes from talking about how we live our lives thinking about those that are outside to also an understanding that our lives are lived with an eye towards those who are inside. 
So there are those who are outside, those who aren't followers of Christ, those who have not been forgiven of their sins and placed their faith in Him. And there's a way we live our lives thinking about them, but there's also a way we live our lives thinking about those within the church and, within, and even our very selves. So Paul has done this, and he's laid before us this wisdom of God. And what we see is that no matter where we are in this journey, so if you're in this room and you're a follower of Christ then I want to say I'm glad you're here and God has something for you this morning. Wisdom for your life. And I want to say that if you're in this room, maybe it's the first time you've ever come to church. Maybe somebody invited you and you're a little bit nervous because you don't know what people are going to say or you're not sure what people are going to think or it's been a really long time or whatever it might be. I believe God has something for you. For wherever you are on the journey, there's wisdom. And that wisdom is good and it is for your good. We can trust God's wisdom. And the reason why we know we can trust God's wisdom is because God has overwhelmingly demonstrated his love and kindness towards us in Christ. God himself came and took on our flesh, took on flesh, took on the sins that we have so that we might be forgiven and live life in fullness. Not just in fullness, but in freedom. Because when we are in Christ, we are no longer under the condemnation of God's law. Anything that could come against us has been removed because Christ has died for our sins, has cleansed us, and has made us right in the presence of God. In the sight of God, he no longer sees us. He sees Christ's righteousness. And there's a freedom in that. We no longer live concerned trying to earn God's forgiveness. We no longer try to live earning God's love. We no longer have to be in constant concern that God's law will crush us. There is freedom that is in Christ. But with that freedom comes danger. The reason why I say that is that as we live in this freedom, we are still wrestling and living with hearts that are sinful. Our sinful hearts can cause us to turn our freedom into a license for sin. And so with every freedom comes a need to guard that freedom so that we handle it the way that honors Christ and lives lives fully for his glory. So what we want to do is I want to look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which I believe puts forward to us two dangers that we need to face as we follow Christ. Two dangers. So if you will, if you would stand with us as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll read the entire chapter. When I'm done, we will remind ourselves this is the word of the Lord, not man's word. I will say this is the word of the Lord. You will respond with thanks be to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction 
on whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of the conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have given us your word. It is a gift that is priceless. For God, it is not our wisdom. It is not Paul's wisdom. It is not a collection of sayings. It is your word to us today. And Father, we thank you that though the context may seem foreign to us, it is just as applicable as it was to the church in Corinth when they first heard it. So, Father, we pray that this morning you would not only give us understanding to what your word says, but that you would convict our hearts, that you would empower us to live in obedience, and so glorify you whether we eat or drink or whatever we do. We love you, and we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, so two things we want to say this morning in the dangers of freedom is the first one is this. Unguarded freedom opens us to temptation. Unguarded freedom opens us to temptation. So what we find as we get into chapter 10, verse 1, there's a transition. And really that transition goes back to the verse that I mentioned um, that ends chapter 9. So if we look at 927. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
So now what Paul has done is he's talking about how we're arranging our lives for the sake of the gospel. And then he moves into this, this idea of he's disciplining, disciplining himself for a very specific reason. He doesn't want to be disqualified. Now, it's uh, about four years ago, the U.S. men were in a 4 by 100 swimming relay in the World Championships. Now, you know the, the men, U.S. men's swim team is pretty good. And they got down to the very end, and the guy got out of the water, and they looked at the time, and they had won the gold medal. They won the world championships, and they were cheering, and they were celebrating, and just a few seconds later, their cheering and their celebrating turned into disappointment. Because on the third leg, the guy left the podium just a little bit early, and because of that, they were disqualified. They went from winning the gold medal world championships to getting absolutely nothing. Paul here says, what I want is I don't want to get to the end of my life and find out that I've been disqualified. I don't think that what Paul is teaching us here is be very careful because if you sin one little time, it's going to wreck your entire life and you're going to lose everything that you think you have. I don't think that's what Paul's teaching here. But what I do think that Paul is doing is he is reminding us of the power and the deceptive nature of sin in our own lives. So many times what we want to do is think that sin's not that powerful. It's not that pervasive. But it is. And we all still wrestle with it. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, who've trusted in what Christ has done for us, we have been redeemed of that and our salvation is secure in Christ. But the Bible all over tells us that part of our salvation is God making us in practice what he's already declared us to be. And so God is working in us to continually put to death sin in our lives. And so what Paul does here is he moves from this idea of he's disciplining himself. He doesn't want to be disqualified. And then he goes to the examples of the people who are in the Old Testament, the people of Israel. And he says, I want you to know that our fathers, he's referring back to the people of Israel, our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea. He's giving these parallels of what's going on. So he says, they were all under the cloud, passed through the sea. This whole idea, they were redeemed from slavery in Egypt. They were brought out. We too have been redeemed from slavery of sin. They were baptized into Moses. We too, who have placed our faith in Christ, have been baptized because we are followers of Christ. They ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. This theme running through 9, 10, and 11 is Paul is helping us to see the importance of the Lord's Supper and its significance here. And just as they ate the manna and they got the water from the rock, so we too are nourished spiritually as we partake in the Lord's Supper. And if you notice the word is thrown all there, all, 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 all. He's given all that he's telling us completely Every one of them who did this, every one of them who participated, every one of them. But then look in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And what he goes to show is just being in the presence, just being around, just being a participant doesn't mean that everything's going to be okay. Just going through the motions, just participating in what everybody else does and what the rest of the church does, doesn't mean that it's going to be okay. Because as they were participating and after they were going through, they were faced with these temptations. 
and it brought down thousands upon thousands. And he lists off four different temptations here. Okay, the first one that he brings off is that of idolatry. We see that in verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. And this reference is to the book of Exodus chapter 32. And so Moses is on the mountain. He's receiving the law of God. And most of us, if you grew up in church, you're familiar with the story. This is where they made the golden calf. God has just redeemed them. God has just brought them miraculously out of Egypt. They have seen his signs and wonders over and over and over again. And Moses goes away and they decide we're going to make our own God in our own image. And so Paul says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. You know, we're tempted to think that idolatry is not a big issue today because we don't have a lot of little statues around. We'll go on a mission trip to somewhere that's overseas and we'll walk around and we'll see little statues that people are bowing down to or they're, they're making sacrifices to or they're burning incense to all that. And we say, man, idolatry is so bad. You should turn from your false god." But the fact of the matter is, is when we will make sacrifices of time, money, and energy to people, hobbies, careers, activities, but we won't give the same energy to following Jesus, we are being tempted with idolatry. And I believe the fact that it's not a little statue makes it even more of an issue. Because when you walk to a foreign country and you see the statue, you can identify easily the God that that person's following. For most of us that wrestle with idolatry, we don't even realize that we're bowing down to a false God. We don't even put two and two together that we are devoting so much of our life and so much of our energy to something like sports, to something like kids or something like fill in the blank we'll say no those are good things well yeah they're not bad things but when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing it's idolatry and the subtleness of not having the little statue can make it even more deceptive And what Paul says here is he's reminding us, you've been redeemed by God. Don't settle for a false substitute. That thing will not satisfy you. It will not fulfill you. So we've got to be careful with the temptation of idolatry. But there's also the temptation of immorality. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. This is referring to Numbers 35, I believe, where the people were walking with the people of Moab. And the people of Moab brought them over and said, hey, come worship with us. And part of the worship was sexual immorality. You know, we think that uh, we don't realize how big of an issue this is. This has always been an issue for people. Do you notice how many times in the Bible we are told to avoid sexual immorality and those things that are against God's design for sex and marriage and that part of a relationship? Do we realize that this goes all the way from the beginning of Scripture to all the way to the very end of Scripture? This is an issue that is bigger than oftentimes we will give it credit to. And what we have to remember, this is not just actions, but Jesus in Matthew 5, 28 said, that if you look at someone lustfully, you've already committed adultery because it is not just an action issue, it's a heart issue. 
when we recognize how big and pervasive it is, especially in a culture that is saturated with media and images and small devices that it's easy no one else sees what's going on on that device, whether it be written or picture or video, and communication with people that nobody else sees that easily stays hidden, the temptation will be there. And Paul reminds us, you are a follower of Christ. You've been redeemed. Your freedom, don't let it cause you to say, I don't need to guard against this temptation. But there's not also the temptation of reality. There's also the temptation of impatience. Let's just, I mean, let's just go ahead and throw this out. This one and the next one, the first two are the ones we kind of talk about. We've talked about that. We've heard people talk about idolatry. We've heard people talk about immorality. Those are the ones that we will all say, yes, that's sinful. Now we're going to get into something where the wisdom of God will probably cause some of us to begin pushing back. We're going to start saying, whoa, whoa wait, hold on just one second. That whole idolatry and immorality thing, yes, I can get on board with that. This impatience thing, what's going on here? So we see this in verse 9. So in verse 9, he says, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Now, this is referring to Numbers 21. It seems as though Numbers, which is a book that so many of us have a hard time getting through, Paul is saying three of these four examples are from the book of Numbers. He's saying maybe the book of Numbers is less about how many people Israel had and more about examples of how we need to follow Christ. But what he says, and the reason why I say impatience, Paul doesn't use the word impatience in verse 9. But when we go back and we look at Numbers 21, it actually says the root of all that happened in Numbers 21 is that the people were impatient with God. God wasn't working on their timetable. They were tired of waiting. They wanted something to be different. And so because of their impatience, they started grumbling against God. And when we have impatience with God, it is a sign that we have a very low view of him and ultimately a lack of faith. It is a questioning of his wisdom. It is a questioning of his sovereignty. It is a questioning of his care for us. It is a questioning of his faithfulness because in our minds, we know what God should do. We know what we need and we know when we need it. And God is not fulfilling our time frame. Now, Paul doesn't say this. He's not trying to now just beat down the Corinthians and tell them how terrible they are. What he's doing is he's reminding them, this is a temptation, as we see a little later in the chapter. You're not the only one who deals with it. This is not uncommon. But know that it's there. And when this stuff starts rising up in your heart, know that, wait a minute, I'm questioning God's goodness. I'm questioning God's wisdom. I'm questioning God's love for me. And Paul says, don't be like that. You see, God sent serpents to destroy the Israelites, not because he was impatient with them, but because he is good and holy and righteous, righteous and wise, and their questioning defamed him. The last thing is this, is discontentment. Now, discontentment, we see this in verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is Numbers 14. Discontentment is similar to impatience. 
This is, this, is what, this is what happens. The people are there, and God is providing for them food every day, manna. Now, it's the same thing every day, but it's food every day. They have no want. Their clothes aren't wearing out. Things are okay. Things, they have everything they could need. And the people start grumbling and complaining. And what they say is, Moses, you led us out here in this wilderness to die. It would be better if we were back in Egypt. And what we want to do is we want to look at them and say, you guys are crazy. Didn't you just see what God did? Why are you grumbling? Why are you complaining? Why are you not content? Because God himself is leading you in a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. He's right there with you. It is evidence. You've got tangible presence of God there. Why are you grumbling about it? But the moment we want to start doing that, the moment we can begin saying, but man, we do the same thing. I read a book this summer called um, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by a dude who lived about 500 years ago, Jeremiah Burroughs. And as I was thinking about this point, as I was reading this, there was a, a paragraph that came to mind. I always want to read to you something that he says. The truth is that not only wicked men, but sometimes the very saints of God find the beginnings of this when an affliction remains for a long time and is very severe and heavy indeed upon them and strikes them as it were in the master vein. They find in their hearts something of a rising against God. Their thoughts begin to bubble and their affections begin to move in rebellion against God himself, especially in this case with those who, besides their corruptions, have a large measure of melancholy. The devil works both upon the corruption of their heart and the melancholy disease of their bodies, and through much grace, though much grace may lie underneath, yet under the affliction there may be some risings against God himself. You see, the the biggest problem with the Israelites wasn't that they got tired of manna. The biggest problem is they were rumbling against God himself. And when we find discontentment in our life, we rumble against God himself. But I've already alluded to it, and I want you to hear something. These things are heavy, and they are hard. And when we see them for what they are, it should give us pause. It should bring about a seriousness. It should bring about a place in our hearts where we recognize where we are guilty of even the same things. And if we were left it right there, all we could say is maybe I'll be disqualified. Maybe I'm be destroyed. Maybe I'm not really a follower of Christ. I don't have these things. But Paul, oh, the Spirit of God, giving Paul wisdom, what does he say? Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. These warnings aren't a beatdown. These warnings are the bright red flag, the big road sign that hits right before the cliff, the flashing lights that is saying, danger ahead, danger ahead, danger ahead. Look out, guard yourselves, rely on the grace of God, turn from it. This is coming. God will provide a way out of it. So even in the midst of seeing the 
the wretchedness of our own hearts, God is leaning down in mercy and he's leaning down in grace and he is saying, I have redeemed you. I have purchased you. I have provided for you. And when this comes, I will provide a way out of it. That is hope and that is good. So even as we know our failings and we know the times that we see this in our lives, we know the goodness of God for us in saying, I don't want you to fall in that. I love you. I died so that you might be redeemed from that. And I died so that you might be redeemed through all of this. So this morning, if you're sitting there and you see in your own heart some of these failings and there seems to be in your life a continual pouring out of, oh, I failed in this. Oh, I'm not good at this. Christ this morning is not saying, I want to beat you down. He wants you to see the depths of your sin. But the even deeper depths of his grace and his mercy for you and his provision so that you might turn from that and turn to him. God is faithful and he will provide. So what do we do? First thing we have to do is we have to recognize situations which open the door to temptation. See, a lot of times we see these temptations, but we don't think about, okay, what's the situation where I face this temptation? When does it happen? And if you can't recognize, if you don't automatically, think about this. Evaluate when you've stumbled. What led up to it? What were you doing? What were you feeling? When did it start? Who were you around? What were you looking at? What were you thinking about? Where were you? All these questions. Evaluate. And then sometimes we have to flee from those situations if possible. So what does he say? Verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So it could be that there are things within your life that cause you to be discontent. Maybe it is looking at other people's pictures. Maybe it is going to other people's houses. Maybe it is conversations with your neighbor. Maybe it is fill in the blank. And you know that in some of those, you can just not do it. Therefore, flee. And there are some of those that you can't not do. You know, maybe it's your coworker. Maybe it's somebody you work with and just walking past their desk makes you discontent. You can't, I'm not saying quit your job. But what I'm saying is, when you recognize that, you begin turning to God. So we flee, but then we flee to God. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 again. Therefore, let anyone think he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, it's not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. If you can't flee the situation, it is not possible. There is something that's going on in your life that's actually keeping you. You cannot do it. Then you flee to God. If there's a way you can get out and not put yourself in the situation where you will be tempted, do it. Get away from it. Jesus said it's better to cut off your hand and enter the kingdom of heaven maimed than go to hell with both hands. That's how serious temptation is. And so when you know you are temptation, the danger sign tells you, get away from it. Unguarded freedom opens us to temptation. 
But Paul says something else here too. Unguarded freedom opens us to selfishness. Now I see this really in verse 24. So verse 24 says, now, now because, because of our period of time, we can't hit every single verse in chapter 10, so trying to get the biggest ideas of what's going on here. Verse 24 says this, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, I think there's two kinds of selfishness at work here. And not necessarily that these are so much different, but maybe they're the flip side of the coin. So the first part is the idea, the kind of selfishness that cares only about our own desires and wants regardless of what God says. That's the first kind of selfishness. The kind that cares only about our own wants and desires regardless of what God says. And we see that in the first part of 23. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Okay? So some people believe that this saying was kind of a saying that was going through the church in Corinth. That basically anytime somebody would confront them with sin in their life, they would basically say, well, all things are lawful for me because Christ has died for me. Therefore, there's no condemnation so I can do whatever I want. And what Paul is saying here is maybe all things are lawful. Maybe because you are under Christ, there is no condemnation for you. And maybe it's not a condemnation factor, but maybe it is not helpful. There's freedom in Christ from the condemnation of the law, but that doesn't give me license to do whatever I want. Because though I may not have condemnation, if I willingly choose to put myself in a situation where I am just filling my desires, even if it goes against God's desires, I am not helping my sanctification. I am not growing. I am not pursuing the one who gave himself for me. But the flip side of that is the kind of selfishness that has no concern for the well-being and sanctification of others. So look at the second part of 23. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Now, we're going to get into a, 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 an idea that's going on here about meat sacrifice to idols. Now, that for most of us, that probably just sounds really strange. Because we can go down to the grocery store... And we can get beef, pork, chicken, lamb, whatever you want. We can just go to the grocery store. We can get it. Now, in a place like Corinth, they didn't, they didn't have a lot of that. Most of the meat that they ate was meat that came after it had been sacrificed to an idol. So if you wanted fresh meat, that's where you went to get it. And so some of the believers there were saying, well, this is just meat. It's, it's, it, it may have been, they may have intended it to be sacrificed to an idol. I had nothing to do with that. I want a hamburger. And so, they, so they'd eat it. And they said, I, it doesn't bother my conscience at all because I didn't sacrifice it. I have no concern that this was sacrificed. It's just I'm thankful that the Lord has provided meat and he did it through those pagans. Well, whatever, that's good. I'm good with it. I'm going to eat it. But then some of the believers in the church, because they knew that that animal was involved in sacrifice, for them, they said, I, can't, I don't, I don't want to consume that. I don't want to consume that. This animal was offered to a false God. And for me, if I eat that, I just feel like I am participating in that sacrifice. So what do you do? Well, some of them were saying, well, I'll eat whatever I want. And I can't believe that you don't believe the same thing that I do. Why can't you get over this? The God's not real. It doesn't matter. Come eat the burger. And the other person's saying, I, I can't believe you're doing this. You are eating something that was sacrificed to a false god. And you call, call yourself a follower of Christ? And do you see what's happening here? Both 
are at odds with each other. And so what Paul says is this, this person who understands their freedom. Are you more concerned about your hunger for a hamburger than you are for the good of the person who's sitting right next to you? And that's what he's going on about. And so what we find is that this selfishness is not just, I'm going to do what I want, I don't care what God says. But I'm going to do what I want, and I don't care how it affects my brothers and sisters in Christ. In in the American church, we have focused a lot on having a personal relationship with Christ. In a lot of ways, this is a response to the idea, well, if I grow up in church, I'm okay. And so we have, I believe, rightfully emphasized, it's not about just being part of a group, but it's personally confessing your faith in Christ, personally understanding that you have sinned and understand that he died for you so that you might be redeemed and there's a personal decision that must be made to follow Christ. But when we combine that with the cultural pressure to keep your beliefs to yourself, what we can see is that there can be a shift in the church to where my concern about sanctification and growth and holiness and righteousness is really about my own. And everybody else, well, they just need to deal with their own stuff themselves. All throughout Scripture, though, God has not redeemed us just to himself. He has redeemed us to a community, to a family of believers. And what Paul is saying here is that our hopes and dreams and our cares about our sanctification and spiritual state can't just be our own. I can't just be concerned about my growth in Christ I have to be concerned about your growth in Christ. And I have to be concerned about something in my life which might keep you from growing in Christ. And it may be something that is no big deal to me. And it may be something that I think is crazy that it would hang you up. But here's the question. Do I care more about you or do I care more about my freedoms? Because the call is that as a family, we are loving each other and caring for each other and willing to set aside our own freedoms for the good of others. That's the call. Is it easy? No. It's not easy. And it's hard. And we start talking about things like this, there can be pushback. But we want to be faithful. We want to be faithful to 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the ultimate goal. We want the world to see the great glory of our God. And when we're willing to set aside our own personal desires, our own personal wants, our own personal satisfaction even, and set it all aside for other people and for what God says, we show everyone that what's most important to us is God, and He is worthy of that. He is worthy of us living that way. He is worthy of us thinking that way. He is worthy of our lives being laid down because He's better than anything else. When we start looking at this meat sacrifice to idols thing, you know, sometimes it's just really hard to find, like, what's a modern parallel? You know, most of the time, that, uh, especially in the southeast U.S., uh, a lot of times alcohol is brought up. So some people have a problem with alcohol. Some people don't. 
How do I make sure that that doesn't cause people to stumble? I think it could be anything from what we post on social media to what we wear. Um, in college, I, uh, uh, I liked trying to make people laugh. And uh, there was this uh, commercial. It was a 7-Up commercial. And the guy in the commercial was just, they, they painted this guy to be completely clueless. And so he had T-shirts made up that were like, make seven up yours. But on the front, it just had make seven. So on the back, it was a little bit offensive to people. I thought it was hilarious. I just thought it was so funny. And I went somewhere, and I, I, I found one of those shirts, and I was like, oh, this is the greatest shirt ever. It is hilarious. So I got it, and I'm wearing it around. And people are just like, oh, yeah, that's funny, that's funny. And I had some of my brothers and sisters in Christ come up to me and just like, did you really buy that shirt? I was like, yeah, it's funny. Don't you think that commercial's great? And they came up to me and they said, do you realize what you're saying? I was like, oh, come on. Everybody knows it's just a commercial. And in my mind, I was like, you're ridiculous for thinking I shouldn't wear this shirt. But it really caused a problem for them. It just, it messed them up. Now, in this situation, I shouldn't have bought the shirt. I don't think it was appropriate. I was just trying to make people laugh. I wanted people to think that I was funny. But when they came to me and they said, this is really causing a problem, I stopped because I knew they were concerned about me and they were concerned about Jesus. And so I laid it aside and quit wearing it. Now, several years later, I look back at it and I say, man, I'm really glad they came and they did that. At the time, I thought they were absolutely crazy and bordering on legalist. But I look back on it and I'm grateful that they said something to me. So it can be anything from what we, like I said, what we post, what we wear, what we eat, where we go, those kind of things. So what do we do with this? We submit our desires and attitudes to the good wisdom of God. Our own personal selfishness and our selfishness towards others. When we see this and it's brought up within us, we remember that Christ has redeemed us. We are his and this is what he's called us to. You know, I I think it's an absolutely amazing thing that God would give us these examples. I keep going back and I can't help but thinking, God gave us these examples because he wants us to know the warning signs and he wants us to succeed. He wants us to avoid temptation. He wants us to honor him. There was a passage that came to my mind this week um, as I was preparing and uh, I just I just want to read it it's Psalm 103 the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed he made his ways known to Moses his act to the people of Israel the Lord is merciful and gracious merciful and gracious Think about the mercy of God to give us examples and warnings that we might keep from falling into temptation and sin. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does, he does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Nor repay us 
according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. If you are in Christ this morning, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But if you are in Christ, take heed lest you fall. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He has given you examples so that you might recognize temptation and turn from it and marvel at his goodness and his greatness towards you. And this morning, if you've walked into this room and you may know about Jesus, you may have heard about him some, you may be just going through the motions, you may be just saying, I do the good things, I'm trying to be a good person, I'm trying to do what's right, can I tell you that your tries will end in failure? If you're simply just trying. Because the standard is Christ. And so if you're on equal footing with the Son of God, eternal God, who took on flesh and is perfect in all of his ways, if you are equal with him, then things will be all right between you and God. But if your tries do not equal to perfection with Christ, you are under the wrath of God. But God has provided a way, and even this morning, he has brought you here that you might hear the good news of Christ, that though you are under the wrath of God because of your sin, God loves you, and he sent Christ to die for you, and he has provided a way that there is not only forgiveness, but there is hope, there is joy, there is grace, there is mercy, there is a complete and total reworking of your life. So that you're not oriented around the small world of yourself, but the glorious universe of a great God and creator who loves you and is infinitely glorious and infinitely good and infinitely satisfies. And he calls you this morning if you've never trusted Christ. Would you do that? Would you turn from your sin and your meager satisfactions that cannot satisfy? Would you turn from the little tiny idols in your life that promise to give you hope and fulfillment but only bring ruin and destruction? Would you turn to Jesus? And if you are a follower of Christ, if you are one who knows you've been redeemed, you've placed your faith in Christ, you've had your sins cast as far as the east is from the west. God is not repaying you. God is not going to count your sins against you. And that right there should be a motivator, a working in our heart to not only worship but to pursue vigorously after Christ. And when you fail and you will, Praise be to God, he does not treat us the way we should be treated, but gives us mercy and grace. Oh, I am free. Oh, I am free to stand up and start back pursuing after Jesus. So if you have had that week where you feel like all you've done is fail, Christ calls you this morning, stand up, you are mine, you've been forgiven. And though you will fail again this week and next week and the week after, until Christ comes back, stand up, walk, pursue after Christ, for he is worthy 
of it all. I'm going to ask Jordan to come up and I'm going to pray. Father, we are grateful. Those words cannot encapsulate the overflowing joy of our hearts in Christ. To say that we are grateful falls so short. But thank you, Father, that you will give us an eternity to begin expressing our gratitude and our wonder at the cross and of you and your love for us. So, Father, I pray that you would continue to guard us from temptation. Lord, even as Christ taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, I pray that this week, as we encounter, that we would turn to Christ, that we would flee, and that we would run to you. And Lord, if there is selfishness in our hearts, that we would turn from it and lay our lives down for the brothers, just as you laid your life down for us. Father, as we begin to think about our participation in the supper. We ask that you would sustain us and provide that spiritual food for us and remind us of the hope in Christ. We love you and ask this in his name. Amen.